I'm Lauren. And I'm Ashley. And this, guys, is Nip Tuck Pod. We are your girl chat. We say the things you want to hear, the things that you're thinking but you don't want to say out loud. And we're all about being strong, aspirational women who basically don't give a... Uh, Lauren, anyway, if you want unfiltered chat, amazing beauty and product recommendations, then look no further, guys. This is the podcast where you will get all of the girly chat. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com So when you interview people, do you, do you have notes? Yes. Oh, you do? Uh, well, okay. So do you mean interview people for the podcast? Why well, don't I just... Inter- when you, when, yeah. Okay. Do, do you like taking notes or no? Um, when I interview people for a newspaper or a magazine, I will have a list of questions that I've jotted down that I just have in case of any of those like horrible moments where you're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say next. I've lost my way. And often when you're interviewing an A-list celebrity and they're on a movie junket, which is where they shepherd in journalists like one after the other and you're given like a 20 minute slot, you only have a finite period of time and you need to win that person over and you need to keep the conversation going. So it's good to be like that prepared. And then while they're speaking, I will take notes because I'm always paranoid that my dictaphone won't work and won't record. But when I'm doing the podcast, it's slightly different because it is so much more 
relaxed or at least that's how you got to make it seem mm-hmm. so with the podcast I do a lot of preparation in that I will read and know about the person and I would have written an introduction that I do and in a way writing that introduction is a really good act for me like it crystallizes my thoughts about what's interesting and what I want to discover with them but because I've asked my guests beforehand for three failures that they don't mind discussing that provides the scaffolding of the conversation so Actually, I'm a lot freer. Because you have the strike and you can always go, if you get stuck or something, you can just go back to, okay, what is your second failure? And exactly. you do it that way. Exactly. But then when you were doing these junkets and things like that, did you, did you experience anyone? Who was the most famous person? Uh, Clint Eastwood is probably you one did, of the most famous. Yeah. You did Clint Eastwood? He was amazing. I, I interviewed his son. Oh, Kyle. No. I remember uh, that right now. What's his son? His Cliff. Stull? Scott. 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 I was Scott. so close. I India. Yeah, Carl, did you say? Carl. I said Kyle. Carl Eastwood. No, I, I interviewed Scott Eastwood and I was making jokes and he really didn't understand my jokes because obviously American, my British humour did not shine through at all. So it became really awkward. And then he just went to me, like a jacket. <laughs> I went, thanks, man. That's something. Yeah, that's something. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to part two of Private Parts. Still here with Elizabeth Day. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Jamie. Hi. So listen, we are, you know, we are incredibly similar. Yeah, we are actually. We are, but in so many ways. I'm taller, but you're taller. You're taller. <laughs> Can I just say you talk a lot about being little? Yeah. But I really don't think that you are that little, and I think that you should stop talking about it and stop drawing attention to something that doesn't exist. I am little. I know. I'm not. I'm you not don't that come little. across like that, though. It's because of my big personality. It is. <laughs> yeah, it? yeah. It's because you're I... really bloated after the weekend. <laughs> yeah, because I just really bloated. How can that guy be so bloated and that sure? That's quite a weird look. No, I don't know. I think it's a, it's it probably was an insecurity of mine growing up because I uh, whenever I walked into a room, all the girls well, they weren't taller than me. It just I wasn't the tallest person in the room, and I feel like I always want to try and have a presence. Apparently, most uh, CEOs or most entrepreneurs are over six foot because they have a presence. So you have to then have a different. How interesting! But then people like Napoleon and Nelson were really short yeah, because in, they had drive. The, yeah, but that's also everyone was short back then. They were. That's, that's true. Everyone yeah. was very short, but we are very similar because uh, you got a double first. <laughs> Don't know why you're. What are you laughing at? Nothing. Yeah. I'm laughing in acknowledgement and recognition. Yeah, yeah. Of our similarities. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, you got a double first for history at Cambridge. I uh, I got a double first for theatre and performance at Leeds University. Did you? Uh, no, obviously I didn't. Oh. I got a two-two scraped it. <laughs> in no ways. But you did. You went to Cambridge and you studied history. Uh, double first is Meg. That's a that's like a really important first, isn't it? Yeah, it means that you get a first in both parts of your degree. So the exam at the end of your second year and then your finals. And and I was astonished. That's not... But I, did, this is, I, I just don't... I think you're always... With you, you're always... I think when you probably when you finished your first ever book, you were amazed that you finished it. You probably were. You, yeah. when, you, when your yeah. podcast became a success, you were amazed that your podcast was a success. That's very true, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like, like myself being short... Where mine is actually more realistic. Like, I actually am short. Where I can pretend that I'm not. You then have to stop thinking that you are surprised when things come your way and you do well of them. Because 
you get a double first at Cambridge, which is amazing. You then write all these books. You're, a you, you, you're doing the things that you want to do and you're visualising these things that you want to do and then they come true, but then you're amazed that they come true, which is bizarre. So why are you visualising them? I would understand that if suddenly I was given a visibility cloak, I would be amazed. I'd be like, well, where's that come from? <laughs> because I wasn't expecting it. But if I, you know, if I'm... You know, people started liking the podcast. I was, I was like, oh god, that's that's exciting. Rather than I'm, I'm shocked that people actually start liking. I think that's what you have to turn around. Wow, your this is God. Genuinely, no, that's like a, a, a abusively profound. I think it's abusively. So abusive. Stop abusing me. <laughs> but that's so. I'm actually thinking. I'm digesting this as you say it, because I think in some ways, professionally, stuff might have gone according to plan. But personally, it really hasn't. And I think it's that that I've struggled with. Yes, I know. But I think if I was going to get into it, I think that you, um, you, expected, you expected to have children. Yes. That's what you, it wasn't something that you thought that's what I'm going to have. You expected to get married and you expected yeah. to have these things. And, and that's what we all, all do. We all, you know, I listened to one of your interviews uh, recently where you spoke about not being able to have kids and you said it's really interesting because you, you're never told at school or anywhere that about IVF and that you didn't, you had, you know, you had, your ovaries weren't, it's something with your, you yeah. had, and you wouldn't explain these, I explained that really, or your ovaries, just said, <laughs> I just said your ovaries. You said went, ovaries and blushed yeah, furiously. Yeah, I went, I, did, I didn't want to get your, I didn't want to get the terminology wrong. <laughs> I was going to say something really bad. I was going to say, I didn't know what it was. But, you're not taught. You're not taught as yeah. young women uh, the limits of your fertility, and neither are, are young men. And I think that that's terrible for both boys and girls. Like all of my sex education at school was about not getting not getting pregnant, and that being the most disastrous thing you could do, and be a teenage mother, and all of that sort of stuff. Like avoid that at all costs. Get someone to wear a condom. Get on the pill. Like everything. No one ever said. And by the way you should know that your fertility will um, expire at some point and that you are born with a finite egg reserve and that if you do want to have a family, it is a good idea to start planning for that in the same way as you might start planning for a career. It was it, it was very sort of one-sided, I felt. And I don't feel... I, I, did you get any sort of sex education at school about Oh, I just laughed my or... way through it. I just remember asking my teacher... If it was bad, if I masturbated five times a day, <laughs> that's literally what I said to him. And he went, and, he, and, I, and I went for a friend. <laughs> Masturbating for a friend, yeah, yeah. like as a yeah. performance. If I masturbate <laughs> on a friend five times a day, does that does that make me gay? <laughs> what was his response? He said, "No." He said, "You can orgasm as much as you want, and that's healthy. It's fine." Is that Inter wrong? No, no. Tell me something. So, as a man, yeah. when if you are masturbating five times a day and coming to climax, does that mean that you can also technically have sex five? You could have sex five times a day. I, I, uh, I you definitely can. I find it amazing. If I'm totally honest, when people go, "God, I spent up all night and we had sex eight times," I'm like, "What? Right? Are yeah. you not exhausted? Do you think you're good at sex? I think that I think that I'm not a natural at all. I was never a natural. Uh, I told you I had this really horrific time. I actually told Vicky Pass on the podcast. Really, I t okay, I'll be whatever, I'll be so honest with you. I've had some really scarring moments during sex. One of the times was when um, I was explaining to my friends that I found the clitoris. And you have to go all the way inside the vagina, and that's where it is. And they were like, 
what? And this friend Tom, who was like the boy, said, no, it's not. And I was like, God, that shot me down. The other time was when I was, uh, <laughs> I can say it, I was performing Cunnilingus. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I look well around done. sheepishly. Well and I, and, the, and the person I was eating to uh, uh, tapped me on the head and said, you might as well stop that because you're not going to make me orgasm. <laughs> oh, Jamie, that's <laughs> really hard. Yeah. I actually responded in the best comeback ever. I went, well, don't worry, if we have sex, you're not going to come either. <laughs> So I was, I was amazingly scared. But also it goes back to this selfish thing that I, when I had my thing about having sex and I, for some I went to an all boys school. So the way you were cool at the all boys school is if you played sport, you were cool. So I had that in the back. So I was cool because I played sport. The other way you were cool is if you hooked up with girls and you kiss girls. And so I, demar- I remember, this is so weird. You know, I remember when I was eight years old and I first went to boarding school, Summerfield School. And I didn't understand the concept of boarding school and stuff like this, but I remember sitting in my class looking around and looking at them and going, none of these guys are cool. They're not going to be friends with me. Eight years old, wow. questioning whether people are cool or not. That is, you shouldn't even have the experience to understand that. But I was always, and I think it's because I had a sister who was 10 years older who was very cool. I admired massively. She was amazing. Uh, and so I was always conscious of that kind of thing. So then... When I was, I was at all boys boarding school, so it was about kissing girls and things like that. And so for me, mine, was, mine wasn't about the connection during sex. It wasn't about whether I liked that person. It was more about if I have sex with that person, I can then go and tell people that I've had sex on the weekend and I'm going to look really cool. Mm. And in fact, that's totally the wrong way to do it. Sex is an amazing thing because it's an amazing connection you have with someone. And you can have sex with anyone, but when you have sex with someone you actually generally like and you actually have a vibe with... The, the, as we all did, the connection is so much more and it's actually incredible. Um, and so I spent all of my teens, not all of them, but most of my teens and then 20s, whenever I was single and I wanted to kind of have sex, it was just about me being selfish. I just wanted to have sex and I just wanted an orgasm. Mm. And so I never really taught myself in the longest way, wind away, am I good at sex? I think that I was selfish and I didn't care but now I've become out of that place where I'm not selfish and I think that when you have sex it's about the experience and joy and things like that and so that's what I think now so basically I'm a genius in the book (laughs) but I think anyone listening yeah anyone listening out there who wants to have sex with me you're in for a swell of a time swell as long as you haven't masturbated five times already that day yeah but I do (laughs) masturbate Nine times a day. <laughs> but it's hard. But for, for boys growing up, it's a tricky scenario because, you know, sex, we're not really taught stuff in sex. And you're meant to know. Yeah. That the cliche is, is like the boys meant to take the initiative and they're meant to know what they're doing. And yeah. That's and, and you tough. don't. And, you, and then you also don't. I, God, I've had so many really awful experiences during sex. But I think that's, again, those failures is what, again, if we go back to your. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I think it's failures and you, you kind of realise from them. But going back to you, <laughs> that was a good diversion. Yeah, that was a good diversion. But you know, going back to this whole thing of where you, you know, I think we we said you you weren't taught these things about pregnancy and stuff like that. So you innately thought that you would get married and you would have these things, and you know, you look at your parents and they were married, and so you were going to have that as well. And that's what I thought. Yeah. Um, and the things that you really wanted in life uh, were, you know being a journalist and and writing all those kind of things you were then surprised to get and so then for you it's a really tricky time I know I keep doing this but it's a really shock to the system that when your blueprint isn't the fact that you're going to be able to have kids that for you is so much worse because you're then not like we spoke before where you're going to if I'm explaining this right you're going to your inner self where you're looking for those comments that are negative to justify what you're feeling when you have you, you realize you can't have kids that's like someone saying you are you have cancer because you don't suddenly think that it's going to happen to you and then it does happen to you and it's a very scary and horrible place to be I I think you're completely right that it was something that I couldn't control so no matter how much effort I put into it I still wasn't getting the result that I wanted so I was very used to putting in hard work and getting a good result and with biology you just can't (laughs) fool it with effort and um, that's been a very good lesson for me, actually. It really, really has, because it's made me question the blueprint I had for myself, not only being a mother, but also everything, like being married, be it, like, who I thought I was and who I thought I should be. And it releases you. What I now realise is that I was released from expectation and social conditioning uh, when at the age of 36 I found myself getting divorced and single. And, um, and and actually what it gave me, as well as being a very traumatic and sad and difficult time, it gave me endless opportunity to create a different kind of life and one that was more true to who I actually was. And that is something that I think is so important to tell people is that it is never too late to change your life. Oh God, totally. And, and it's so funny, you know, you, you think that you're going to be in this life forever, but actually on the sixpence it changes in a heartbeat and suddenly it's totally different. But so, and maybe this is too deep because I'm sure I can ask you, with, the, with your marriage, do you not think that you were the person you wanted to be or you were conforming to someone that you weren't? Do you think that yeah. was the case? I think um, I thought I was being completely honest and true to myself. Um, but I got, I met my ex-husband when I was 29 and we got married when I was 33. And I think I'd been single, I, I, I hadn't been single in any, I, I had been in a long-term monogamous relationship with someone from the age of 19. So I God. had actually never taken time to understand who I was no, outside you, of a relationship. you don't. And then no. you, you live in these sort of codependent relationships where you just... Codependency, 100%. Yeah. Yes. And so um, when I got married and I my ex um, is older than I am and had been married before and... I was very aware of that and I wanted to be the perfect wife so that I would never get left, which is so ironic given what happened because actually, again, I was trying to combat that internal narrative, which is like, if I am perfect in this role, if I put loads of effort and loads of work into it, then it's all going to be fine. But actually, I just erased myself from my own needs because I was so concerned with how 
I was making his life. And, and that is, I think, what happened. And the reason for me that it imploded, and I'm extremely careful when I talk about my marriage because mm. it is a story that involves two people. Completely. And I, and, I, and I do not talk for my ex and I respect him and I need to leave that for him to talk about if he ever wants to. But um, for me, the ultimate trigger for the implosion was not having children. And that was something that I realised I really, really wanted. And for the first time, it felt like I was able to take the battle on to find my own voice, not for me, but for the child that I wanted to have, if that makes sense. So it, it was... Um, that it was all really difficult, but ultimately it did make me stronger in standing up for myself. It's interesting as well. And, and huge respect to you for, because it's very easy in certain situations. And I have, you know, we've never spoken about uh, your divorce and things like that. But I can only relate it to my mother who, uh, my mother was in a marriage with my father. They divorced and my, my dad left my mum. And my mum never spoke ill of him, never spoke poorly of him, you That's know. And, and lots of different things happened, which she could have easily done. Uh, but she didn't because she was like, no, that's your father and you and it's his place. And there are two sides to every story. And and she didn't do it. And and I think that's a really because it's very easy to be angry in in a relationship. And, and, and anger is sort of the main emotion that comes out. So it's it's amazing that you kind of say that and say, look, I don't speak for him. You know, he can do that. So it's a great way to be. Um, but you you the reason why when you started writing your books and things like that, the book that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that sort of set you apart was your book, The Party. Yes. Look at you with your research. What's up, everybody? <laughs> no worries. And you you wrote this book and it then became a hit. What was that like for you? The fact that you had grown up with all these books, you were writing, you were doing journalism and stuff like that, but suddenly one of your books became popular. I mean, it was amazing because it was uh, genuinely like, it, it's been a lifelong dream for me to have a book published, let alone a book that then lots of people bought and read. And um, it was particularly sweet because it was my fourth novel. So I'd had the prior experience of having written three other novels that I'm proud of and that they did okay, but they didn't do that well. <laughs> and um, often I'd be at kind of parties and someone would say, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm a journalist and I also write novels. And they'd say, oh, anything I would have heard of, at which stage I'm like, <laughs> I punched them in the face. No, <laughs> yeah. at which stage. Yeah, I've got one here, actually. <laughs> yes, it's <yeah>. signed. <laughs> or they'd say, and I'd say, oh, I've written three novels. And they'd say, any of them published? <laughs> What? Fuck mostly you. men. I would yeah. say mostly men would say that. I was like, yes, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then the party came out, and it felt that I was at long last being recognised for something I truly loved and truly cared about. And it was a really, really lovely experience. And um, I'm very grateful to everyone who bought it. Yeah, but I don't know that because you say that's the first time you recognise, but then I read something. Where is it? I read this thing, if I can... Can I just say quickly as well that the, the party is all based about being... It's all based around the idea of being a massive outsider and being an outsider at school and not fitting in. So I used a lot of my experiences for that. Which it's so funny when you go back to your own experiences that will actually just shine through yeah. sometimes. So there was this, but I read this thing about you. So while working at the says while working at the Telegraph, uh, day won the Young Journalist of the Year award at the British Press Awards, which I've also won in two thousand four. <laughs> Dominic Lawson, the editor of the Sunday Telegraph, was quoted at the time saying, uh, "Day was probably the most brilliant young talent most of us has se- most of us has seen in twenty years." Yeah. Okay. So that. Yeah. So that. So. So you. This is what I find so funny. You're suddenly like, oh god, people. But you were. You were congratulated forever. People thought you were good. They thought you were great. And so almost to the point that your books hadn't been successful as you hoped they were. It's like, well, they should be. 
Or am no, I talking what do I absolute think about that? shit? Was, um, I suppose I... Oh. <laughs> what do I think about yeah, so it? It just yourself? didn't go <laughs> in. For some reason, it didn't go in. I think, again, I've always wanted to write books. And I'm very grateful for my journalism career. But books, for me, were like the ultimate thing because I was reading them as a dweebish child when I was four. But... And when Dominic Lawson said that, it was an incredibly complimentary thing to hear. And uh, but when I hear something like that, I don't believe it. Yeah, I know. That's what it is. I know what it is. I know what it is. I don't you believe sit, it. Then but, you don't but, believe it. Yeah. But the fact that then then there's a, a, a fact, an objective fact, is that the party sold this many copies. So that's like, oh, I, I need to take that as a fact. That's not someone's opinion. Yeah, because, because again, it goes back to that's why you're good at exams because you had the answer. So it's like, oh, this is... So you'll get given the answer and you get given the fact and so then therefore you can accept it. Yes. But until you get that sort of information... Oh, this no. is so hard. Am I yeah, going to yeah. be happy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I am happy. But this is so interesting because no one's ever put it like that before. And you're I so right. And I'm someone who has weekly therapy, by the way. Like therapy is for me an investment in my future mental health. Exactly. Totally. I'm all up for therapy. Yeah. Now. And But one of the things that... So this is a therapist I've been seeing for the last two years. And one of the first things she said to me in my first session was you care way too much what other people think of you. And my challenge as a therapist is going to be never letting you know what I think of you. And she never has. And it's really like off-putting. I would, I would hate that. Yeah, it's really like difficult. Me? <laughs> totally. And like, I had to stop trying to charm her. I just like, I just go there now and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what you think of me. I don't know. <laughs> you, I'm, just, I'm like looking at her bookshelves, trying to memorize book titles, being like, is she this kind of person? Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> But it's forced me to sit with myself and work out what I think of myself. And I am getting to the stage. It's taken me this long. I turned 40 last November. So it's taken me like this long to work out that actually my value is not dictated by someone's inability to see my worth. So, and what I mean by that is that what I do, if I love it and if I think it's of value, that's enough. So we were joking about the podcast awards, but I know that I really value my podcast and I get, I get great joy from the doing of it. And that's enough. Like that has to be, that, that has to be the kind of starting point for everything. Yeah, I, I know. I, 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 that, that's exactly it. It's, you know, you, without a doubt, at the beginning, you should just be happy for what you're producing and doing. The Japanese cult, that's why Japanese culture is so amazing because the Japanese culture doesn't matter who, what, whatever job you're doing, it doesn't matter if you're a binman or a lobby receptionist you just really respect your job and you love the job that you do and you are happy that you're doing this job but in for some reason in in the uk we have this thing where we write stuff or do stuff we always go oh i don't know if it's that good you know i don't think any of us ever done something we go that's a that's a banger that's going to kill it and that confidence i really admire in some people when they have it but then when you you set up your podcast i said how to fail and then off the back of the success of it you did something like eight episodes and someone said well we need a book now isn't yeah. that what happened yeah that's exactly what happened well, but that's we've done 130 <laughs> episodes where's my private part you're book? reading out your writing every week i mean put it into a book yeah i'll sell it i'll sell it uh, i'll put you in touch with my agent okay um, great basically i think because i'd written books before and it was actually my editor at fourth estate who have, she's published all of my novels and she was the one i it was before the podcast even launched and i was like i'm about to launch this podcast and she looked at me and she's like that would make a really good book and can you write me a proposal over the weekend and i was like would it and i'll try <laughs> and so that's what i did and then actually i was really intimidated at the prospect because it's the first time i've written a non-fiction book but I realised as soon as I started writing it, I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to say. 
and I loved writing it as a result. But but that is exactly what happened. It was an extremely tight deadline. I, I wrote it in three months. The first series what? had just aired. It, I did my yeah. dissertation in six months, and that was like 12,000 words. What was your dissertation on? Patrick Marber, uh, the playwright. Oh. Yeah. Told you, double first. <laughs> Leeds University Theatre Performance. <laughs> did you watch the film Closer? I did watch the film Closer. I love Closer. that film. But I also, I performed in the play Dealer's Choice. Yeah, where I played a uh, son of a uh, wealthy father who drank too much and gambled. It was me at the time. So I was like, well, this sounds great. I can fit into this role very easily. Yeah. But she wrote it in three months. But what is your writing process? Well, how do you, I remember I, uh, Philip Pullman, the guy who wrote, um, I was about to say, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Harry, the yeah. guy who wrote Harry Potter. The guy who wrote Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Game of Thrones. <laughs> Wait, what did he write? He, he wrote, you the know. The Amber Spyglass. The Amber Spyglass, Northern Lights. Northern Lights, that's it. Like. Um, and he said, he explained his writing process. And, I, and he said he was very laid back. He'd go into a shed at his garden. He would flick elastic bands. I remember it so well. For some reason, weird things stick in my head. Do you have a process that you go into where you go into like a different place where you start to write? I, or do you just take loads of crack and then start writing? <laughs> you take loads of heroin and then just go and paint the words. I masturbate five times. <laughs> yeah. I open a packet of Marks and Spencer chicken. Yeah, treats And then I'm set. Yeah, I'm set. then you're ready to go. Um, I do and I don't. So um, when I'm writing journalism or doing the podcast, I will tend to work from my desk at home. And it's very important for me to go into a different space when I'm starting to write books. So I will either go to a cafe at the end of the road or in the case of How to Fail, I actually went to LA to house sit for a friend of mine for a month, which was incredible because... That's so the holiday of you. Oh, my, exactly. That's that exactly is so the holiday of you. It was heaven. It was heaven, partly because you get to write in the sunshine and you get no emails after 2pm. And I love LA for many reasons, but those are two of them. But... Um, I do have a I do go into a separate mind space and writing is very much something that when I'm in it and I feel like I'm doing it well I feel untangled as a person I feel that it's what I'm meant to be doing and and that's a really really it's it's almost like when you're in a yoga class and you're in the flow and you're like getting all the moves and stuff which has never happened to me but but it's that sort of same feeling of like just being in tune with yourself mm-hmm. um but i i often think that actually starting writing a book is the hardest thing and so many people are put off because it's an intimidating prospect and so whenever i start something i i make a deal with myself which is like every time i sit down i will write a thousand words and it doesn't matter if those words are rubbish and I'm going to write them with no judgment because I can always go back and revisit them. But but a key part of writing is just like writing the stuff and getting it done and trying not to be precious about it because a blank page is your worst enemy. Which, you know, Woody Allen said something like 80% of success is just turning up or 50% yes. of success is just turning up. And it's such just getting out and just writing and putting it down on paper. But then isn't, isn't it an amazing feeling when everything just suddenly comes together and you have this book and, it's, and then it's on the shelves and people are reading it and when you get that response back like you did with your book that just must be so great also the fact that you get to go you can you can work anywhere in the world yes that's incredible that's that is amazing. a beautiful beautiful thing now i feel very very lucky to have that i really do because all i need is a laptop and a functioning brain yeah. <laughs> and and it is great but to answer your question about it it, it feels utterly incredible when the book exists in physical form and you see it in bookshops and I've actually never seen anyone reading one of my books in real life but lots of my friends have and they send me pictures that they've taken of people on the tube and stuff like weird stalkers and um, that's just completely thrilling it absolutely is like that's a 
and I will never get tired of that. So when you see someone reading your book, you've never seen it, but you wouldn't go up to them and go, I'm Elizabeth Day. Do you know, I actually think I would now because I remember my friend Francesca telling me that Martin Amis, who obviously is like one of the world's greatest novelists, um, he had only ever once seen one person, a lady on a bus reading his book and he hadn't gone up to her because he thought, oh, it's bound to happen again. And it's never happened again. So I actually think now I would. And I'd say, I'm really sorry. I know this is weird, but I need to do this now just for future me, for the sake of future me, I need to do this. I think when I see someone reading your book, I'm going to go up to them and say, that's my friend. Yes, please do. I will do that. I will do that 100%. And then they'll be like, you're Jamie Lang from no, Chelsea. Won't. Can no, I have a they'll selfie? They'll say, I've always thought you were a cock. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me and for being so wonderful. No, it's been a joy. It's, you're, you're amazing. Go and listen to Elizabeth's podcast, How to Fail. Um, go and get your book, How to Fail. Go and read The Party. I've never read it, but apparently that's the winner. <laughs> They're all winners. Yeah, they're all winners. But as we found out the podcast was, they're not really. <laughs> there is a first, second, third, Actually, fourth, and fifth. Actually, books have on prices. <laughs> there definitely is. Uh, Elizabeth, what we like to do at the end of the podcast is leave our listeners with something inspirational. What, that I have to say? <laughs> yeah, every time people get thrown by this, every single time they're like, oh, what do I say? Anything. Okay, my, my inspirational words of wisdom are, um, even if you feel, and you're listening right now, and you feel that you're in a particularly challenging part of your life, or you feel in the depths of despair, I would encourage you just to cling on for a few moments longer, because you never know what's going to happen next. And I feel that the real failure would be not finding out. So cling on, you're not alone, and connect with each other. Boom. And masturbate five times a day. <laughs> See <laughs> Don't next do that. Week, do. do it all the time. It's great fun. And chicken does not smell of sperm. <laughs> As we do a nice little cyclical to get to the end of our podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>